Welcome to the Lubar Executive Education Podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking about ways you can increase your chances of making good decisions consistently in a complex and unpredictable world. With me today is Clint Rush. Clint is a leader, innovator, team builder, and problem solver that is invigorated every day by the opportunity to help people become more than they ever thought they could and to transform organizational process, culture, and leadership in the relentless pursuit of client, stakeholder, and community excellence. After serving in the United States military, Clint has amassed experience in operations, finance, consulting, and executive leadership, working in settings as diverse as supply chain, aviation, healthcare, mining, hospitality, government, nonprofits, retail, technology, and utilities. Welcome, Clint. It's great to have you on the show. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's great to be here. To get us started, can you share a little bit about your leadership journey and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, my leadership journey I think starts, you know, when I was a, when I was a kid. I, I grew up in Minnesota, uh, just outside of Minneapolis, and you know, I was the kid who was, you know, I was captain of the team and and pursued, you know, leadership stuff when I was a kid. Opportunities for roles, you know, to, for for leadership roles. Uh, my senior year of high school, I interned with the with the city of St. Paul Mayor's office, and so I got a chance to, you know, be the first I was the first high school intern they'd had, and so I was, you know, front and center in the in the political arena, and it was fun. And so I had this great, you know, leadership environment growing up. I went to UW Madison and dropped out of school and joined the army uh, right after September 11th. And so that was really the first time that, like, my my you know childhood leadership experience really translated into real life choices for me. So I spent some time in the military. Ended up going back to Madison to finish my degree. Once I finished my degree, went back on active duty as a as a commissioned officer. My military time obviously was incredibly formative to the way that I think about about leadership and the way that I think about the challenges and the importance of that process. And when I got out in 2009, after getting back from Iraq, went to work in the private sector, worked through a number of different opportunities. And, and every time I really had the opportunity to either practice, every, every role I had along the way had an opportunity to either practice uh, the leadership skills that I had developed before or the opportunity to steal new leadership skills from other leaders that I worked with, or to get to do both. And I think that continuous process of refinement and development and just relentlessly stealing from everybody was incredibly important in, in creating the, the style that I have today. Uh, thanks so much for sharing some of that. And I appreciate your service to our country. Thank you very much for that. You know, I also understand you started your own company and grew it to a to a great point where you then decided that it was maybe time to step away and let somebody else run it for you. Yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine how difficult that was. How did you know it was time to do that and make that decision? Yeah. So first I, I didn't actually found the company, but I came in, uh, I came in early on and, you know, the company had gone through a, a couple of CEOs and hadn't had the right fit and they found me. So we, we were able to grow. It was an exciting time and it was a great growth cycle and, and, you know, very meteoric growth. And then we hit a point where, the environment around the business had changed and we had, we had a choice of, of strategy on how we wanted to grow going forward. And the strategy and the approach and the situation that I'm a good fit for wasn't where the company was going to go. And there's a variety of reasons that it wasn't where the company was going to go. They're all good reasons, right? They're all good reasons. And I, I, you know, I, I think that's the right path for the organization, but I think it takes a lot of self-awareness to be able to look at that situation and say, how am I going to contribute to this, right? What, what am I going to do every day that helps us advance along that strategy? And I looked at it and I said, nothing. Like, I'm, I'm not going to help it. In fact, I think a lot of the things that I'm really good at 
are actually going to hold us back on that strategy, right? And so it's a tough realization, but I think it's it's the it's the expectation of every leader to recognize when they're the right person for the seat and when maybe they're not the right person for the seat. Now, the good news for me was I had somebody on my team who was absolutely the right person for the seat. And that made it really simple. And actually, it helped me really with that realization because I was thinking about how I would go about this. And I thought, well, I'll just go ask him, right? Every time I've got a problem, every time I've got a question. And, and it dawned on me, well, wait a minute. If I'm if all I am is a conduit to him, then all I am is a rule and outlook called auto forward. And like, that's not, that's not value, right? I'm not contributing to the organization. And so he and I had a really uh, bizarre conversation and we talked about you know, the idea that he was going to take my seat. And it, it was a, it was a really weird process, but I think it shouldn't be weird. And, and I think the the fact that it's, that it's unusual and weird and, and sort of different, I, I think actually reflects the degree to which that self-awareness that we really need just isn't as present as it ought to be. And I think you're right about that. And, you know, we talk about decision-making self-awareness, being an authentic leader uh, yeah. all the time in our executive programs. And, yeah, I think this is a great example of one of those tough and important decisions that that leaders are really paid to make and that people look to leaders to make. When you think about decision making as a leader, what can people do to consistently make those high stakes decisions in the best way possible? Uh, since you never have all the experience or you never have all the information to be 100% sure of what's going to happen. Uh, is there a framework you use or some techniques you use to make good decisions consistently? Yeah. I'm fascinated by decision making. I think it is. I think it is the most interesting thing about uh, about leadership. I think it's the most interesting thing about uh, executive roles because you're right. That's that's what the job is. The job is making decisions, and we are not as you know human beings. We're, we're not great decision makers. We're not, and that's not a bad thing. It, it's just a thing. But but you've got a role that's really all around decision making. And yet it's something that we're just intrinsically not exceptionally good at. And I think the secret to making effective decisions comes down to a few, a few factors. So the first one is make fewer decisions, just make fewer decisions. And I think there's a, you know, there's a lot of research obviously about uh, decision fatigue and the challenges that it creates for people. And, you know, I think one of the most fascinating ones is to look at the, imp the, the impact of like time of day or, or of, you know, duration of shift on the decisions that doctors make whether they ask for more tests or whether they, they, you know, schedule surgery. And there's this incredible linear relationship behind the idea that early in a doctor's shift, they're going to be more inclined to make the call. And later in the shift, they're going to go, why don't we get more tests? I think that's fascinating because it's, it's such a good example of how more decisions really weigh us down. When I got out of the army, I noticed it because for the first time I would wake up in the morning and go, what should I wear today? And that's the first time I had thought about that because before I would go that shirt and that pair of pants and they look the same and put them together, right? And that's the deal. But now all of a sudden we've got this new thing of, of just one more decision to think about, one more thing to, to occupy our, our headspace. So I think first make fewer decisions, just make fewer decisions. And I have an algorithm that I use, I'm happy to talk through that, that reduces the number of decisions to be made. The other way that we can, we can make fewer decisions is by delegating better. There's a lot of decisions that executive leaders get involved in that they just shouldn't. They just shouldn't just push that decision down. If you've got a person who's who's close to the action, who's close to the impact of the decision, and you're not letting them make the decision, that's a miss because they're the one that has to live with the fallout of it. Now, that doesn't mean get completely hands off, 
But it does mean that the bias should always be to push that decision down, though. The bias should always be to take the decision off of the executive's plate. Not put more on, but 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 get more off. So I think that's that's really the first part is, is just making fewer decisions, right? That's the first the first component of being better at it. Said a bunch of stuff there, so I'll shut up for a second. If you've got any anything you want to respond to with that. I would just uh, echo those thoughts, especially on delegation. That's what we spend a lot of time with. And, you know, we do cover quite a bit about the different traps that people fall into when they're making decisions just to make people aware of them and that we're human and your brain's going to try to get through some of this stuff really fast. And it's maybe not always the best way to do it. So delegating for sure. And since you brought it up, you know, you have an algorithm. I'd love to hear a little more about it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So the simple way to to make better decisions. And this is not mine. I didn't create it. I shamelessly stole this. I'm going to be very open about that. I stole it from a friend of mine. I am 100% sure he stole it from somebody else. And so I'm sure that somewhere out there, there's someone who's going, that's not Clint's, that's mine. And it's gotten stolen like 15 times on the way from him to me. Okay. So it's, it's very simple. So the first question you ask is when you're trying to debate between alternatives, the first question you ask is, is one of these clearly better in the long term? clearly, unquestionably, incontrovertibly better in the long term? And if the answer is yes, then you choose that path. We don't want to be in the business of rooting for the sun not to come up because the sun's undefeated. If there's a path that tomorrow gets better and the next day gets better and the next day gets better, choose that path and get on that path. That knocks out a ton of decisions. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of lenses you can use in evaluating that. The first one that's very simple is, how, how consistent uh, a decision is with your values. If there's, if there's a decision that's very inconsistent or a choice that's very inconsistent with, with who you are, with the company's core values, with your personal core values, every single day that goes by, that decision is going to get worse. It's not going to age well. And so thinking about, is it better tomorrow? Is the long-term impact of the decision favorable or disfavorable? Immediately points you to doing things that are values aligned. So that's the first question. So now we've got a certain number of decisions that are already made. And now we're looking at the next the, the next set in which there isn't a clearly better long-term option. Okay, it's toss-up. The next question is, is one of them better in the short term? Because if they're if they're neutral or unknown in the long term, then pick the one that's better in the short term. Simple. Get, get today's win and move on to tomorrow. Okay. Just looking at those two in that order knocks out a huge percentage of, of decisions. And it didn't take much of it didn't take much effort. For us to ask the question, better long-term, better short-term, okay? The next question we ask is, can we reverse the decision? If the answer is that we can reverse the decision, then just make a choice. Because if if you can reverse the decision with additional information, if, if tomorrow you can make it in a different way, then you're better off making the decision right now, picking a path, and then allowing the the, the feedback that that decision creates to update your priors so tomorrow you've got a better choice. But that only works if the decision is reversible. If the decision is not reversible, then you have to move on to the next step. But there are a lot of decisions that are reversible decisions that we think of as irreversible. And so I think that's the first step where it really takes the leader having some scrutiny to be able to say, is this actually reversible or, or irreversible? Like, which one is it? And that's tough. I think that's the the step where you really need to have other viewpoints. And the other ones, other viewpoints help. But this reversibility question is one where where other viewpoints are really essential. 
because they can sometimes talk through the second and third order effects of a decision and be able to say, yes, you can reverse the first step, but you absolutely cannot reverse the third order effects of the decision. Okay. So now we've got a decision where let's assume that there is not a clearly better long-term option. There is not a clearly better short-term option. Okay. Not reversible. Right. So now we ask the question of does additional information make our decision better? Can we get more information to make our decision better? Because there are a lot of times where the answer to that question is no. And people are, we are hardwired to say, I want to go chase data. I want to, I want to have more data, yep. more data. And sometimes that's just not possible. Sometimes we're just guessing about what the world is going to do. So if there is the opportunity to get more data, then we move on. If there's not the opportunity to get more data, then we just got to make the decision with what we have. Okay. If there is the opportunity to get more data, then we ask one more question, which is, is it worth it to get that data? And so I think one of the really good examples of the, is it worth it question is a hiring question. We can absolutely go get more information on somebody before we hire them. We can put them through a six month process of having them work at the company in a semi-paid internship and evaluate every step of the, we can absolutely do that. We can absolutely do that. But is it worth it? Are we really going to be better at hiring people if we do all of that? Because I think the cost of that is one, it's terrible hiring experience. Nobody wants to work at the company. Two, you're putting just as much money into that process as you were into hiring the person. Three, somebody's got to administer it and look after it. Four, if it's a long-term job interview, right? If it's a six-month job interview, there's still going to be interview mode for that six months. And you don't really know if you've got the right person at the end of it. So did we actually learn anything? No, we didn't. It didn't, it wasn't worth it. We got more data, but it wasn't worth it. Okay. If that's the case, just make a decision. Now, if you get to the place where not a clear long-term, not a clear short-term, not reversible, can get more information, information does create value. You've got a very small subset of your large decisions at the beginning. Those are the ones to spend your time on. And that's the only decisions you should think about because everything else has been just thrown to the side. It's either make this decision or pick a choice and execute. And you've now got a group of decisions that there's ambiguity about long-term benefit, ambiguity about short-term benefit. It's not a reversible decision. You need more information and the information will improve your decision. If you really think about all of those, those particular characteristics of a decision, and you think about the day that you go through and just think about how many decisions fall into that bucket. I would defy anyone to get to a second hand. As you're counting it, like it's going to be five or fewer in a day. But how many decisions do we spend our time thinking about? Far too many. Right. Wouldn't you rather steal 20 minutes from the decision on what to have for dinner and put it into one of these five that's so incredibly important? Those are the things where you should spend all of your, your cognitive energy and we just don't because we get caught up in the early stuff. We're embarrassed about being wrong. And we're afraid of the idea that if I make a wrong decision today, what do I, what, what if I have to walk it back tomorrow? Okay. Well, that's called growing and learning. I don't know a lot of people who are 40 years old who believe the stuff they believed when they were 10. And I think if you present that to somebody, they go, well, that's insane. Yeah, I understand it's insane. Why are you worried about it? If I tell my team today, hey, we're doing X. And tomorrow I go, hey, guys, listen, the world changed. So my opinion changes. They don't go, man, that guy doesn't know what he's doing. They go, wow, that guy's responsive. 
we're afraid of making bad decisions. And so we get, we get stuck in this early phase of that algorithm and we don't get to the meaty part at the end. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I love the whole framework in these questions. Easy to remember, easy to follow. And I, and I can see and imagine how you know, you're going to knock out a lot of the stuff with even just the first two questions alone. Um, I also like the bias for action. You know, once you get to that third question is, I think we definitely as people and humans are afraid that we can't reverse a decision when in all all reality, we can reverse it or change course at the very least. That's something that that my my time in the army absolutely informed that. So I was I was a Ford Ford observer for artillery when I was an enlisted guy, and so you know that the, these are the guys who are looking through the binoculars and they're talking on the radio and, and basically sending the coordinates for long range fire. And there would be guys who would spend when we were, we were about training, they'd be spending so much time trying to get it exactly right, trying to get it precise, trying to figure out exactly where it was, and. I'd go, well, it's kind of over there. Let's just get a round down range. Let's let's shoot something. And then once the first round lands, you adjust it and you put it on target, right? And they would spend all this time trying to get really precise and figure it out. And they'd fire the first one they'd miss because you always miss with your first one. And then they'd have to do the same thing, which was, you know, get it on target. And one of the instructors I had, and this was, you know, this is 20 years ago. He, he said it, it was so, it was so intelligent. He said, nobody cares how close your first miss was. They care about how quick you can get rounds on target, right? Nobody cares how, how like your first miss, it doesn't matter. Just get something down there to react to, right? And that doesn't mean just, you know, fire the first round without ever, no, you got to get it directionally correct, but then refine, like get closer. Um, and I think, you know, that experience obviously, you know, impacted a lot of it. And then I think, you know, there, you see that application throughout the rest of, your life it's it's we understand it when we play golf no one stands on the tee of a par five and goes you know i'm looking at the left side of the green no you're not you're hitting it as far as you can that way and you'll worry about it when you get down there just grab driver and hit and i think when it gets to business we get out of that mentality and we start to really get over our skis and start to say well but what about step four in this process and i don't i don't know we're step one let's get step one right Yep. And let's execute the hell out of step one so that when we get to step two, we have more to react to. Yeah, I love it. You brought this up a couple of times already. You know, there's that fear of my decision's bad or there's going to be some sort of failure as a result of a decision I made because for whatever reason, I didn't have enough. I didn't use your algorithm. I didn't have enough data, whatever it is. Sure. What should leaders do when they their decision's going bad? Yeah, I think you have to start before the decision goes bad. You have to you have to set the conditions to say it's going to happen. So I wrote a document that that is like my user manual, right? And I, I share this with my team. And it's here, here's kind of the tips and tricks on interacting with me. Here's here's who I am, and here's what I believe. And in it, a couple of times, I specifically write, "I'm going to get decisions wrong." It's in there more than once. I'm going to screw up. I'm going to make mistakes. And I think the first thing that leaders need to do is set the conditions to be wrong. Set the conditions to be wrong. If the leader says, and I, you know, I've heard this from leaders that I've worked with before. I heard this from instructors way back when, like, you can't be wrong. They can't ever have doubt in you. They always have to believe that you're going to get it right. And okay. Um, that's a really high bar to set for yourself. I don't think it's achievable. And what's your plan when you crash into the bar? Because now you've, you've completely shattered the worldview. 
if instead you go, guys, listen, I'm going to get some wrong, but here's the promise that I make. When I get it wrong, we're not going to be wrong for long. Okay. We're going to, we're going to figure out when things are wrong and get them fixed as quick as we can. And I'm going to rely on you to tell me when they're wrong. It doesn't mean I'm going to listen to you every single time. It doesn't mean you're going to be the one steering the ship. It doesn't mean that you're going to be the one who has veto power. But what it does mean is I need your feedback because I'm not as good as we are. I'm never going to be as good as we are. And you say that and you really, really, truly believe that up front. You set the conditions to be wrong. Then when you get wrong, when you make a decision that's wrong, when you're in a situation that's wrong, you're not dealing with, oh, my God. What does this say about me? I, I, my whole world is built on this idea that I'm infallible and suddenly I'm having this crisis of conscience. Instead, you go, hey, remember that thing I said? Yeah, it's came true. It's come true right now. Like it came true today. I was right. Like I knew that. And it becomes confirmatory rather than like completely undercutting. And, and I think that's that's the unlock is, is for leaders to, to lead with that humanism and say, it's gonna happen. And when it does the value that we can bring to the table is the ability to pivot very quickly. The adherence to the sunk cost fallacy, I believe, is the number one problem leaders have. Whether it is out of embarrassment, whether it is actually a financial question, whether it is a stubbornness, whether it is an arrogance, there's a whole host of things that cause it. But every morning you get to make those decisions again. And if you don't think that way, if you don't, if you're not wired to say, Look, I made a bad call yesterday, but that doesn't mean it's going to be a bad call today. I can fix it. I had uh, dinner with a friend of mine last week, and we were talking about executives who, he does executive coaching, and we were talking about executives who have people on their team, and they complain about people on their team. And he said, he just, sh he, he was shaking his head, and I said, what? He goes, I just want to say, like, you know, you picked them, right? And I, I said, not only did they pick them, they pick them every day, yeah. right? If, if, if you wake up and go... I'm not going to take action on this person on my team who is not meeting the, the expectations, who is a cultural cancer, who is just not the right person. And I'm just going to kick it to tomorrow. Right. Great. You picked it. You chose that again. Now, that doesn't mean, right, everything has to happen immediately. There are strategic timelines for things. But in terms of the way that you think about your expectations and positioning, whether it's hiring decisions, whether it's strategy decisions, whether it's, you know, transactional stuff. There's no morality in being wrong, but there's a ton of morality in staying wrong. And I really believe that to my core. Yeah, it's some sage advice there for sure. We've talked about hiring decisions, probably some of the more important decisions that you have to make as a leader. And as leaders, we want to get those decisions right. In your opinion, what's the key to effectively selecting top tier talent and assembling great teams? Yeah, so this is one that I will say I am incredibly passionate about. When I think about leadership, there's there's really three things that define success. There's people, there's culture, and there's process. And if you get those three things right, everything else falls into place. The first one is the first one for a reason. And that is because if you don't have the right people, your culture will not flourish and your processes will not be developed well or adhered to well. People, it, like having the right people is the absolute linchpin to any business. How do we get good at hiring people? Well, the first thing we have to accept is that as people, we're not good at it. As human beings, we're just not good at it. I saw a study that said at six months of tenure, 53% of hires were rated as a good hire. 
So that means that we are three percentage points better than tossing a coin when it comes to hiring people. That is a staggeringly low expected. Like that is bad, right? And so the good news of that is, okay, if that's average, it's not hard to be better than average, right? Our, our competitors are not running particularly quickly. You know, this is, this is pretty easy. But I believe that the secret is, is a couple of things. One is gathering data. To my algorithm earlier, this is an area where you can go get more information and some of the information will make it better. Some of it won't, right? So I believe in a, in a quantitative and qualitative approach. Um, and I've used this at, at multiple organizations, putting people through a consistent set of quantitative evaluations, right? Let's get some actual data points on these people and compare them to what our expected motivators or personality factors or cognitive capability, right? Those things, we can get some data on that. I don't think that's everything. And I think that if you attempt to evaluate a person through purely cognitive means, it's no different than saying, or excuse me, through purely quantitative means, it's no different than saying, listen, I'm just hiring resumes, not people, which is, I think, utterly asinine, right? I, I think the idea that you you wouldn't consider the, the totality of a person is, is staggering. So I think you balance the quantitative piece with the qualitative piece. I believe in having an extensive interview process. I think that weeds out people who don't believe in the things you believe in. I think that, you know, you see the, the organizations that scan this QR code to get an interview today or whatever. Like, no, that truly the opposite of the way I think. And then the last piece that, that uh, I use, and I've used, uh, I think, to, to pretty good success is, is a case interview. I'm a big believer in the idea of a case interview because I think, you know, if, if you look at my resume, there are bullets on my resume that I know you're going to ask about. And I know that because every time I've ever talked to somebody, they've looked at that and gone, oh, tell me about that. Right. And so to some extent, that bullet's on there because it's a good, uh, you know, reflection of who I am. But on the other hand, it's, it's also a way of me taking a, a 60 minute interview and going, I know four minutes of it are going to be telling that story. So now it's just 56 minutes. Right. And it's the Bill Parcells thing. You take all the cards you can lose, like you take those all off the table and all you're left with is cards you can win. For me, a case interview breaks that paradigm. And a case interview says, like, I'm really going to sit down with you and say, like, how does Mike solve a problem? And I'm going to put you under the under the, the spotlight and, and really see how you can react to new data in real time, how you can handle being challenged, how you show up and the way you think things through. And what that helps me with is not interviewing you for the role that we're interviewing the person for, but interviewing for the stuff we can't anticipate. I had this conversation this morning with a couple of hiring leaders in my organization. And I said, if we sat down and we got everybody in the company together and we said, let's try to think through all the things that could go sideways in a given day, we would be able to come up with a pretty awesome list. Okay. And then I introduced a situation that we dealt with last week. And I said, does anybody believe we would have thought that up? Like, could we have come up with that? And everyone laughed. And I said, there's no way. We could have done this for a year. We never would have come up with that because it's crazy. But that's what we dealt with. That's the reality. That's what our people are going to deal with. And so we have to find a way to interview them, not for the role they think they're hiring for, not for the role we think they're hiring for, right? But for the role they're actually going to do. And that's true of job interviews. That's true of, look, that's electoral politics, right? George W. Bush campaigned on, I'm a, I'm a compassionate conservative, I'm a uniter, not a divider. And nine months after he got you know, put, in, put in office, he became a wartime president. There's no way to prep for that. There, there isn't a debate question where they go, you know, hey, Governor Bush, how would you react if there's a massive terrorist attack that we've never thought of in our lives and all of a sudden the whole world is plunged into chaos? 
And he goes, well, I'm glad you asked. I've got a plan for that. No, of course not. That doesn't exist, right? It's it's how you deal with, at a macro level, the 9-11 stuff, the pandemic stuff, the you know those types of things that occur. We've got to find our equivalent of that in the interviewing process. And I believe that a case interview helps to identify people who have that cognitive flexibility to be able to deal with that. So once you have a team assembled, yeah. how do you build trust and maintain that trust over time as the team runs into different challenges and as things change? Yeah. Okay. So everything I just said about how I believe in transparency and I believe in like this importance of like including people and transparent and, and openness, right? You're going to think as I answer this question, you're going to go, that man's insane. The answer is locked doors. The answer is locking doors. And I promise you this will make sense, right? I realize that's insane. So I believe that there are two doors that have to be kept locked at all times, the front door and the back door. And what I mean by that is when we lock the front door, what we are saying to our team is we are not willing to allow people into this room, into this team who do not deserve to be here. We are putting a very high standard on coming in the front door. And the way we lock that front door is an incredibly rigorous hiring process. Every single position in the organization goes through the exact same hiring process. I don't care who you are. I don't care who you're friends with. I don't care who you know. You go through the same thing, okay, all the time. And what that does is it creates this immediacy of, of trust when somebody comes in the room. Because you know what I had to do to get in the room. You know that I didn't get in just because I'm somebody's buddy, just because I'm somebody's cousin, right? You know that I had to jump over the same bar you did. And so you go, okay, I can trust that person, right? And if you think I didn't steal that idea from the military, like, no, right? Obviously I did. Everybody knows what it takes to get through certain things in the military. And so there's this moment of, okay, I trust them, right? I know they can hack it because I know they can do it right? So that's the front door. And what's really cool about locking the front door is it doesn't take long before the room, before the team locks it for you. You have those interviews and, and the first, the first, you know, few months and, and it takes a while to get there. People want the seat full or filled, you know, they, they, they need the extra hands. Right. And then you get to this day where they go, yeah, that person, they, they don't have it. They don't have, they're not good enough to be one of us. And you just walk outside and, you know, yes, I won, right? You don't have to lock the front door ever again. You throw your keys away. They're they're doing it for you. They're locking the front door for you. They're saying, we're holding the line to make sure only great people come in. Now they are fiercely protective of the culture. The second part is locking the back door. And that is, we're not going to let good people leave. We're just not going to let good people leave. When somebody is really great, they're going to have a desire to advance their career. They're going to have a desire to find something new, to, to do something more than they are. The burden for the leader is to grow the business fast enough that we can create that seat here. And they don't have to leave to go find it. I worked with a woman who was exceptional, truly exceptional at developing and, and growing her people. And one of the things that I was always stunned by was how how committed she was to the idea that if you are great here, you will be great there, right? Whatever you move into next, you're going to, you're going to do great. And she was so open and totally comfortable with people leaving her organization to go elsewhere in the company. And what I discovered and had this conversation with her was 
the reason that she did it was was one, she just cared about people, right? Which is awesome. But two, what she realized was, look, if if I get the reputation of being the person who just seeds the organization with this incredible talent, then when people work with me, like there's no resistance ever, right? There's no territorialism. There's no idea of like, well, she's out for herself. No, she's not. Because she gave away all her good people last year and then found new ones, right? And so the as a, as a company, as an entire organization, we lock the back door and we just say, we're not letting good people leave. And so when somebody starts to kind of walk toward the back door, right, metaphorically, they start to kind of, I don't know, it's it's not good. Things aren't quite right. Instead of the group saying, you know, hey, look, Mike's having a tough day. Just leave him alone. The group says, hey, Mike's having a tough day. Like, let's go grab him and go to lunch. Right? Like, let's, we're bringing him back. We're bringing him back to the group. Right? This person's really starting to look elsewhere. We need to bring him back into the group. Right? Keep them together. You keep the back door locked and keep the really great people in the organization. Those great people continue to reinforce the locking of the front door. The longer the front door is locked, the better the group is and the more the back door stays locked. And if you keep those doors locked, the group becomes very self-perpetuating. And that culture becomes, it just builds upon itself, right? Because when companies talk about we have to improve our culture, you can't do that. It doesn't work. You can't go work on culture. All your culture is, is just an aggregation of the million things you did, right, to get to this point. So you got to do all that other stuff. As long as you do it with the doors locked, it stays in the room. Yeah, that makes sense. I really like the point, though, how you're talking about it's up to the leaders to make sure the organization's growing. So there's room for people to move within the organization and to take on bigger things and to yeah. really re realize their full potential. So I love that. Yeah. So before we wrap up this episode, what additional advice or suggestions do you have for our listeners? Additional advice or suggestions. Okay. So I think there's three things that I tell really any any leader that I work with, any, anybody who I, I encounter. The first one is never, ever leave the building with an unasked question. Okay, just unasked questions are the single worst thing you can have because if you have a question in your mind and you're not willing to externalize it, you're not willing to put it on, whether it's an issues list, if you're running on EOS and you go like, that's, that's where it just needs to live or whether it's a text message to your boss or whether it's just walking down the hall and asking. Unasked questions, slow learning. Right. So just never, ever have them. You'll have them for a moment and just make sure they're out by the end of the day. That's the first one. Second one, absolutely take time for self-reflection. Take time to think whether that is throughout your day, whether that is going for a walk, whether that's setting two hours aside on a Saturday where you're just going to sit down with a legal pad and a pen and just doodle. That's fine. But take yourself away from the business for a period of time and let yourself do some reflection. And the third one is find a way to learn. Find a way to learn and challenge yourself. I was talking to, to a friend the other day and he asked me what, what I was reading. And I told him, and he said, that surprises me because I would have figured you'd be reading business books. And I said, I am. And he said, I don't think you understand what that book is about. And we had a good laugh. And the truth is that I really believe that the innovations and insights and things that we can create in our organizations come from outside the organizations. They're, they're ideas that we steal from, from other places. I was talking this morning with, with my team and we're talking about how we can best uh, increase our, 
our patient attendance, right? So our patients come in and sometimes they cancel. And, you know, our therapy requires people to come in for, for 35 visits. And so uh, having a patient who cancels on a particular day, because maybe they're feeling a little under the weather or it's raining and they don't want to drive or whatever, that is, it, it's reducing their clinical outcome. It's reducing the impact of the therapy. So we want to make sure that we maximize that for them. And so we were talking about what to do. And there's some, you know, there's the idea of gamifying the process for the patient. But I said, the other thing is, what if we, what if we talk internally about our team and the impact and the influence we can have on those conversations? And so the idea we came up with, and we're, you know, we're vetting it out and we'll look at it, but we're going to probably create a, a championship belt. And the facility that does the best at getting their patients to come in and have consistent treatments, like we're going to pass the, we're going to pass the strap around. Right. And, and, you know, like the, there's a, there's a part of it that's really exciting that at the end of the month, we're going to, we're going to announce, Hey, here's who, here's who won this month and you get the championship belt the next month. That idea doesn't come from a business textbook. That idea comes from eight-year-old Clint watching pro wrestling. And I think that that's the stuff that we've got to be thoughtful about is, is where can you find ideas elsewhere and bring them in? And the only way to do that, the only way to do that is to spend your time expanding your mind, spend your time learning and growing and finding new things because that's the fuel that you have the opportunity to reflect on. Yeah, that's true innovation. So, yeah. Well, Clint, thank you so much for taking time today and talking with me and our audience and sharing your experience and advice and uh, give us a lot to think about here. Yeah. If anybody's interested in learning more from you, where can we point them to? Yeah, so uh, ClintRush.com. Um, if you're curious about our therapy, the company I'm with now is FlowTherapy.com. But uh, but ClintRush.com to find me, and then you can also find me on LinkedIn at you know look up Clint Rush. Sounds good. I'll enter information about all those resources into our show notes for everybody. Awesome. In closing, I'd like to take a moment and thank our listeners. We wish you the best of luck as you move forward on your leadership journey. Please check back regularly for additional episodes.